Mark chapter 14, verses 17 through 31. Hear the word of the Lord. When it was evening, he came with the twelve. As they were reclining at the table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, that one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be grieved and said, and to say to him one by one, Surely not I. And he said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who dips with me in the bowl. For the Son of Man is to go just as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. While they were eating, he took some bread, and after a blessing he broke it, and he gave it to them, and said, Take it, this is my body. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will never drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. After singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, because it is written, I will strike down the shepherd, and the sheep shall be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. But Peter said to him, Even though all may fall away, yet I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you, that this very night, before a rooster crows twice, you yourself will deny me three times. But Peter kept saying insistently, Even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And they were all saying, and they all were saying the same thing also. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Father, by your spirit, would you guide our hearts to, through your word this morning? Lord, would you strengthen us in the faith by your word this morning? Would you show us the faithfulness in Christ that is for us to see in this text? Would we, uh, certainly like these disciples, be willing to say, I will die for the name of Christ? But Lord, we need your strength to stand in those moments. We thank you for the picture of the gospel that is displayed to us in the Lord's table that is instituted here by your Son, our Savior, in this text. Although what might be a common practice in our churches as an ordinance, Lord, may this May we never grow weary of what is being proclaimed at your table and what it means for our salvation and what it means for us to have boldness in Christ in proclaiming his name and living a life that is worthy uh, to be called a disciple of Jesus. Apart from Christ, uh, none of us would be here uh, this morning. Um, You sustain um, everything (laughs) through your Son, through your Word. Would you be with me? Would you be with um, all of our ears and hearts this morning as we desire uh, to see Christ more clearly uh, through the Word? In Jesus' name, amen. For those that are newer, uh, for the past two years when I've been given the opportunity to preach, uh, I've desired to work through the Gospel of Mark in a particular way. I think for most of you, you're aware that this morning we will be looking at yet another Markin sandwich. 
And just by way of quick review, there's a series of sections in the Gospel of Mark that are organized in a precise way that, I've, that I have argued, um, highlight features of the person of Christ and things that Mark does not want the reader to miss. He focuses in at certain portions in his gospel um, to highlight features of Christ and things that he does not want us to miss. Now, this is not to say that other portions of Mark um, do not contribute to the big themes in Mark, but that these sandwiches force the reader to zoom in and really wrestle with Christ and what He requires of His disciples. Uh, this passage presents a glorious truth for every disciple of Christ, uh, but in Mark fashion, we are hit with irony, we're hit with a warning, and we are given a glorious picture of who this suffering servant is. So two of the biggest themes in Mark are discipleship and Jesus as the suffering servant. Mark wants his readers to know what it means to be a disciple of Jesus and that Jesus is the suffering servant of Isaiah 53 that would take away the sins of his people. Now, Pastor Seth spent the last two weeks in Sunday school working through the Gospel of Mark and looking at the other themes that are there. Uh, so I'd encourage you um, after this sermon and uh, that you maybe go back and watch um, those two Sunday school lessons if you haven't done that. Uh, he unpacks more fully the other themes that we do find in the Gospel of Mark. And if the Gospel of John, which is where Pastor Seth has been spending his time, so if the Gospel of John was written so that we would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, that's the purpose statement that the Gospel of John gives us, I've given Mark a purpose statement for his Gospel, and I believe his purpose for writing would be that we would understand the cost of discipleship. Mark desires his readers to count the cost of discipleship. And at the heart of our passage this morning is what needs to be in the heart of every disciple. At the center of our text, which is the center of this Mark and Sandwich, is the central truth of the gospel and what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. So if you don't get anything from the sermon this morning, I want you to hear this. Your ability to walk faithfully till the end is grounded in Christ's faithfulness. This means that if you think you will be able to remain faithful to Christ till the end in your own strength, this text has a rebuke for you. The good news of the gospel is that our salvation is secured in Christ's faithfulness, not our faithfulness. Let me say that again. It will not be by your strength that keeps you till the end. It will be Christ's ability to keep those that are His till the end. Now, Christ certainly commands, expects, and empowers us to obey. But at the heart of the gospel is Christ's power to save those that are His. Now, there's so much in this passage that we're not going to be able to unpack fully, but the main point of this Mark and Sandwich is that a fully devoted disciple of Christ recognizes that apart from Christ, he can do nothing. A fully devoted disciple of Christ rests in Christ's strength to bring him through trials, temptations, tribulations, and the ability to defeat sin. 
a disciple of Jesus Christ understands that his justification, his sanctification, and his glorification are founded on and flow out of Christ's faithfulness. Let me say that again. A disciple of Jesus Christ understands that his justification, sanctification, and glorification are founded on and flow out of Christ's faithfulness. We're going to hear great confidence, as Amar just read, we're going to hear great confidence from these disciples in their ability to keep themselves that they would never betray Christ. But we see something very different happen when the pressure of being identified with Christ presents itself. So let's spend just a few minutes kind of setting the stage for this passage. Jesus is having the Passover with His disciples. We see this in verses 12 through 16 of Mark chapter 14. We've been told in verses 10 and 11 of Mark chapter 14 that Judas was the disciple that would betray Jesus. Judas has already met with the chief priests and agreed to terms as to how he would um, turn Jesus over to them and, and, and had um, already agreed on a wage that he would receive for this act. So the coup is set for Christ and his betrayal and the arrest through the hands of Judas. We know that as the readers. So as you would expect, our passage has three sections. You can see the outline there for you on the screen. Verses 17 through 21 make up the first section. Verses 23, uh, 22 through 26 make up the heart of the passage. And then verses 27 through 31 make up the closing section of this passage. And you'll notice in the first and third sections with the disciple, that we see the disciples' insistence that they would not de de uh, deny Christ no matter the, the, the cost. That's the connection between the first and the third section. The middle section, the heart of the passage, is what Mark wants to put on display for the reader, namely the faithfulness of Christ in the midst of, all, of our unfaithfulness or the disciples' unfaithfulness. So as we come to our passage this morning, the reader knows that Judas will be the uh, disciple that betrays Jesus, but it's clear from our passage that none of the other disciples know this. We're also told in verse 20 of our passage that Jesus knew his betrayer, who, who it was as well. We even see in verse 19 that Judas himself says to Christ, surely not I. Notice in verse 19 it says, one by one. So that would include Judas being one, lying through his teeth to Christ, that he would not betray him. When Judas himself says, surely not I. So Jesus is sitting down for a Passover meal with his disciples. They have been told several times by Jesus that he would be handed over to the religious leaders, killed, and would rise from the dead. This was in Mark chapters 8, 9, and 10. But what is new to the plot in our text, at least for the other disciples, is that one of Jesus' own disciples would contribute to Jesus' arrest. Now, to just close this introductory portion of our text, Jesus says something very theologically profound, I might say very hard for us to understand. Verse 21 brings together the fulfillment of prophecy, God's ordained decree in history, 
and man's responsibility for sin. So if I was preaching through the, the book of Mark, a bit like the fashion that Seth has through John, there'd probably be a need for a full sermon in understanding biblically how we bring these two theological um, features together in, ver in uh, verse 21. But we don't have time for that today. But the question in that verse that is raised is what does it mean for God to decree and ordain sin? This was fulfillment of prophecy, yet also hold man responsible for his sin. That's a theological distinction that's happening here. And for now, we must hold these doctrines together as what the Scriptures teach. Here's the doctrine. God is not the author of sin. He does not cause sin. He does not tempt us to sin. But sin has been ordained into God's plan of redemption. At no point, in God's, uh, at no point is God surprised by sin or responsible for sin, but He will use sin to bring to pass His plan. Judas willingly sinned when he betrayed Jesus. Judas eagerly planned for this opportune time to betray Jesus. We saw this in verse 11. It says, and he began seeking how to betray him at an opportune time, a convenient time. This is Judas going forth with this plan. At no point in God's sovereignty over sin or, or ordaining the betrayal of the Son did Judas go kicking and screaming to the religious leaders against his will or plead with Christ not to be the one that would betray him? Judas willingly and with great calculation betrayed Christ. Judas is responsible for this act of sin. But Scripture also teaches that what man intended for evil, God intends or can work for good. Man is always responsible for his sin. However, God is sovereign over every sin and able to work through even the most grievous sins for his own good purposes. So verses 17 through 19 and verses 29 through 31 are the bread, if you will, in this Mark and Sandwich. The focus in these two sections is on each of the disciples' insistence that they would not be the one to betray or deny Christ. Now, I believe that Mark intends each disciple of Christ to investigate their own confession and their own allegiance to Christ. Jesus has just declared that one of the disciples would betray Him and hand Him over to be killed. Mark draws each reader of his gospel into the story with this sandwich. He desires each disciple to have dealings with their own confession and allegiance to Jesus. The disciples are grieved to hear that they might be the one that would deny or betray Christ. And I think Mark wants each of us to respond with something like this. Instead of, surely not I... Apart from Christ keeping me, surely I would be the one that would betray and deny Him. Through this narrative and sandwich, I believe Mark desires to communicate in dramatic fashion what Hebrews 3.12 exhorts us to do with our own hearts. See to it, brothers, that there not be in any one of you an evil, 
or unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. Mark wants us to investigate our own hearts and our own lives as he encourages each of the disciples to do. He leaves it open. He knows who's going to betray him, but he leaves it open and says, it is one of you. He wants each of them to have dealings with their own confession. So Jesus does not disclose that Judas would be the one who betray him. He desires each disciple to discern in their hearts where their allegiance is. What are they willing to give up for the sake of Christ? Notice here a massive distinction in the heart of a true disciple. Judas, a false disciple, was looking to use Christ for his own gain and profit. A true disciple is willing to lose everything for the sake of Christ. So if you have come to Christ looking to improve your life, to use Christ for your ends, to profit off Christ in His life, you are posturing yourself like Judas and are failing to see that a true disciple will even give up his life in allegiance to Christ. Isn't this what Jesus said in Mark chapter 8, verses 34 and 35? And He said to them, If anyone wishes to come after Me, he must deny himself and pick up his cross and follow Me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for My sake and the gospel will save it. Judas did not deny his desires to profit off the life of Christ. He saw that Christ was worth 30 pieces of silver, the price of a slave in the Old Testament. Instead of like the woman who anointed Jesus with the perfume, the woman saw the value of Christ when she emptied the jar of her perfume over him and displayed his worth by covering him with this, aroma, this beautiful aroma and this jar of perfume that would have cost or been worth a year's salary. Judas saw Christ as a means to his end, to his ends. The woman, a true disciple in the previous passage, sees Jesus as the treasure and through which everything else finds its value. By not disclosing which disciple would betray him, he desires all of his disciples to take a posture of discerning in each of their lives, each of their hearts, what they truly believe about Christ and what they would be willing to give up for Christ. Now, Peter's convinced, as he often is, that he's right. <laughs> but in verse 31, it says, so are all the disciples. They suggest they are all willing to die with Christ. However, in verse 27, Jesus makes it clear that all of His disciples will fall away when they are pressed to stand with Christ. Jesus quotes from Zechariah 13, 7, when He applies that prophecy to His disciples that the sheep will scatter. So now before we dive into that prophecy, I want to just stress that Mark wants each of us to examine our hearts and to discern, to discern what we are willing to give up to follow Christ. If it is anything other than everything, we have not truly understood the call to discipleship. Everything the disciple has, even his life, is what Christ requires. So if you see more value, so if you see more value in your life, 
or in your family or in your possessions, you are at the risk of forfeiting your soul. A disciple will see Christ as gain and everything else as worthless in comparison to knowing Christ. A little bit of application here. If you are struggling with sin in your life, you need to remember this truth. You are valuing something more than Christ. You need to ask when you're feeling tempted to sin this question, what am I valuing? What am I valuing more than Christ? When we begin to understand that our fight against sin is a fight for that which is most valuable to us, only then can we rightly root that sin out. Consider right now that sin that so easily entangles you. What is it about that pursuit of that thing or person that is so enticing? What promise is that thing holding out to you? Is it security? Is it pleasure? Is it justice? Is it peace? When temptation to sin arises in your heart, you must begin by asking, what am I valuing more than Christ? At the heart of our battle against sin is worship. What are we giving value to? Are we uh, who or what are we sacrificing our time and resources The disciples do have the right posture towards Christ. They confess in our text that they would be willing to give even of their lives, give up even their lives for Christ. But this gets tested. And we see just how weak the flesh is when Christ takes a few disciples into the Garden of Gethsemane just a few verses later to pray right before He's handed over. Peter, James, and John are not even able to last an hour with Jesus in prayer prior to His arrest. That's where we get the verse, verse 28, or verse 38. Keep watching and praying that you may not come into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. So the disciples of Jesus may certainly be resolved in their heart that they would die for Christ, if that is what is required of them, but they must rest in the power of Christ to keep them. A disciple of Jesus is resolved to stand for Christ even when their life is required of them, but as they stand, they are trusting in Christ's power to keep them. In verse 19, we are told that the disciples were grieved when Jesus told them that one of them would betray Him. They couldn't imagine turning on Christ and betraying Him, even if it meant giving up their life. They were missing the most vital component to their ability to withstand the pressure of being united to Christ when He would be betrayed. The disciples in this moment missed where their strength would come from in the moment of this trial or this testing. They resolved in themselves to stand strong with their allegiance to Christ, and this would be challenged. They did not abide in Christ's strength to keep them in the midst in this moment of testing. But just like the prophecy, despite their failing in the midst of the fire, their faith was tested and refined like gold and silver as Christ intended. So this brings us to the center of our passage this morning, verses 23 through 26, which is 
loaded with tons of theological implications, but I want to focus in on what I believe is the focus of this passage in the Gospel of Mark. So first we notice that Jesus chooses to sit down with His disciples to share a meal, knowing that one of them would hand Him over to the religious leaders to be killed, and the rest of the eleven would scatter when their allegiance to Christ would be threatened. Now, although there is not a direct quote here to Psalm 23, as I was working through this passage, I couldn't help but keep coming back to Psalm 23, verse 4. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Christ chooses to sit down at a table in the midst of 11 men that will end up denying him and one man that will hand him over to his death. We need to see the patience of Christ in this passage. We need to see the peace of Christ in this passage as he eats with men that will soon deny and betray him. Christ was still willing to have his body broken and his blood poured out for men who would waffle in faith when it was tested. Christ does not flinch in the presence of his enemies or his enemy, the betrayer, Judas. Christ is the one that pursues fellowship with his disciples and secures his fellowship with them through his body and blood. Christ simply requires that his disciples take the elements that Christ has given to them as a tangible expression of his faithfulness to them and his desire to fellowship with them. So just a, a quick application here on the Lord's Supper or the Lord's table for us. When we come to the Lord's table each month, we are taking hold of Christ's body and blood in the elements as the only hope of salvation. We are saying Christ was the one that faithfully obeyed God when I couldn't. It is by Christ's blood that my sins and my lack of faithfulness can be adequately dealt with. It is because of Christ's body and it being broken in my place. We are saying there is nothing I bring to the table I must only receive from Christ and who Christ is for me. What a patient and faithful Savior we worship. What security and grace there is in this salvation that requires we only receive from Christ. It seems the disciples had at least initially missed who would actually keep them when their, faith would be, when their faith would require their lives. And I say initially missed because there's evidence in church history that each disciple remained faithful to Christ even unto their death after the resurrection. So just as the Passover pointed back to God's faithfulness, it pointed towards God's future faithfulness to his people. So Jesus is sitting down enjoying the Passover, and in the midst of this Passover celebration, he is instituting the Lord's table, a new meal for this new covenant that he is making with his people. The Passover meal, like the Lord's Supper, has a historical, present, and future application. 
the Lord's table points back to the death and resurrection of Christ, just as the Passover pointed back to God bringing Israel out of Egypt. It points to Christ's faithfulness in history, which has purchased salvation for us. And it points to our ongoing fellowship with Christ and the Father through the Spirit every time we partake of this meal together. The tangible elements speak to the tangible evidence of the resurrection and of our salvation even as we eat it. But it also proclaims the Lord's death until He returns. That's the future aspect. In other words, what is being proclaimed in the Lord's table in the present will come to an end or will be fulfilled when all of God's promises are fulfilled and we fully enter into the kingdom of God when Christ returns. So there is a historical feature to the supper. There is a present feature to the supper, and there is a future hope-filled feature as well to the Lord's Supper. When we enjoy the supper together, we are saying as a body that apart from Christ's faithfulness, we would not be here in this moment with one another and proclaiming the exact same message. We come to the table to feast on Christ, not to focus on our works or our faithfulness, or our ability to keep ourselves, but on Christ's work and His faithfulness. We come to the table to eat the same meal because Christ is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. We come to the table clinging to the tangible elements as both reminders of Christ's work for us, but also the tangible future that awaits those that remain faithful in Christ till the end. We are convinced when we come to the table of what Jesus says in John 15, 4 and 5, abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit from itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing." The same meal proclaims the same message each time we partake together, only Christ. It is because of His faithfulness that we come to the table, and it will only be through Christ's faithfulness that we can enter into the kingdom. We bring nothing, we only receive and enjoy Christ. This is the gospel that we proclaim when we partake the meal together. And as I mentioned earlier, the disciples' posture is correct. They must be willing to give up their lives for Christ. They must be willing to lay down their lives for the sake of Christ, but they missed where they would receive that power. The Lord's table puts on display in dramatic fashion that it would be through Christ's faithfulness to them and to the Father's will that would enable them to remain faithful. The disciples would get this point, but this would come after the resurrection and, we, and would be evident in their commitment to Christ, even to their last breaths, as we see in church history. So we bring nothing to the table. We bring nothing to our salvation. We tangibly enjoy the historical truth of Christ's death and resurrection through the bread and the cup 
today and each day that we celebrate that supper. And we proclaim the hope and the future of what this gospel promises those who remain faithful in Christ. So let us also not forget at the table that He did not just call you to Himself, He called a people to Himself. We fellowship with Christ at the table and what He did for each one of us, but He also purchased a people for Himself. We are not the only one at the table. It seemed several in the Corinthian church had missed this. We partake together the same food, the same drink, the same amount. Maybe you'd like a little bit more each time, but we all partake of the same. Because we have been redeemed in the same way by the same Savior. May we remind ourselves at the table each month that the elements never change because Christ never changes. What secured our salvation yesterday is what allows us to walk in newness of life today and what will cause us to walk faithfully till the end. And what was secured for us at the cross and in the resurrection for each one of us. Let us consider the past, present, and future nature of the Lord's table every time we partake together. Now, I want to close by looking at uh, Jesus' quote of, uh, from Zechariah's prophecy and how it is fulfilled in the disciples' denial of Christ and subsequent return. So let me read uh, Zechariah 13, 7 through 9. Should have this open, sorry. Zechariah 13, 7 through 9. It's on the screen for you. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd and against the man, my associate, declares Yahweh of hosts. Strike the shepherd that the sheep may be scattered. And I will turn my hand against the little ones, and it will be in all the land, declares Yahweh, that two parts in it will be cut off and breathe their last, and the third will be left in it. And I will bring, and I will bring the third part through the fire and refine them as silver is refined and test them as gold is tested. They will call on my name, and I will answer them. They will say, they are my people. I will say, they are my people, and they will say, Yahweh is my God. We see in this passage that the Lord, we see the Lord testing His people and a remnant being refined through striking the shepherd. Yahweh would have dealings with His people through judgment, but a faithful remnant would remain. Notice in verse 9 that a third of the whole would be brought through the fire and refined as silver and gold is refined. This scattering would be a test and a refining of those that are truly saved and know Yahweh. The disciples were certain that they could stand in the midst of opposition to their faith, but the minute they saw their shepherd go down, they scattered. We should notice that all the sheep scattered when the shepherd is struck and only a third returns to the Lord in verse 9. This remnant, though, is refined and tested through this scattering. This is what's happening with Jesus' disciples. The Lord was refining them. And I would also argue that is, that, that is what Jesus does with all of His disciples. 
we notice the connection that Yahweh has with the shepherd. He calls him my shepherd. I believe this text is teaching that when the shepherd is struck, the sheep, the sheep will scatter, but the true sheep will return to Yahweh. We should also notice that it was Yahweh that struck his own shepherd, and the purpose of this striking was for the refining of the true sheep. The crucifixion was God's idea. Christ submitted to the will's Father completely. He willingly submitted to all of His Father's will. We also learn that the blow He received was not for His sins, but for the sins of His people. And Isaiah 53 makes this clear. The suffering servant would die for the sins of His people. It would be through the scattering of the sheep that the true sheep would return to the voice of the true shepherd. And we should keep this truth in mind that we're seeing unpacked here in Mark. We should see this, um, or we should keep this in mind as Seth continues to work through John chapter 6. True sheep will return to the true shepherd. So as we come to a close, I want to quickly unpack what seems to be a tension in the Scriptures over what it means to deny Christ. There is obviously a difference between the betrayal of Jesus and the rest of the disciples denying Christ. This discussion of denial carries some uh, very large historical church discussion, though, on this issue. So for several hundred years after the, the death and resurrection of Christ, there was a series of great persecutions in church history on Christians. And over the centuries, there were many that cracked under the pressure, under fear of torture and death, that refused to offer sacrifices to the emperor. So that was one visible way that somebody cracking under the pressure of their faith um, would be um, them actually sacrificing to the Roman emperors. And some of these Christians, after deflecting or defecting, desired to return to Christian fellowship. And there were some Christians that did not want to receive these traitors back and others who cited Jesus' response to Peter after he had denied him. So this was not a quiet discussion. It sounds like in the fourth century it actually led to riots and the leaders of both of these movements or positions were sent to exile. So let me add just one more text uh, to... Uh, to heat up the tension here a bit on purpose so that we can resolve it. Matthew 10.33 says, Whoever denies me before men, I will deny him before my Father who is in heaven. We feel this tension. So how do we bring together Christ's response to Peter after he denied Christ, where he restored him and commissioned him for ministry in John 21, John chapter 21, and Matthew 10 33. How can Jesus say in Matthew 10, 33, whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. And then for Jesus to restore Peter and commission him for ministry after his denial. If you were in the sanctuary a few minutes before the service and were using the meditation verse to prepare your heart for the service, you would hear these truths coming together in that passage. So listen to 2 Timothy 3, 11 through 13. 
It is a trustworthy saying, for if we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. The warning of Matthew 10, is in verse 12, but the hope of Christ's faithfulness to the elect is mentioned in verse 13. And why do I use the word elect here? Because Paul says in verse 10 that he is enduring everything for the sake of the elect, that they may also obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. So in short, Matthew 10, is a real warning. When insult, suffering, tribulations, or the threat of death come, we must stand firm in faith, clinging, clinging tightly for Christ, uh, in Christ's strength. But we must remember these other biblical truths. Christ is faithful when we are faithless, and we see this in Christ's dealing with Peter. Christ will remain faithful to those that are His. John 6, 39 is clear. He will not lose any that are His. 2 Timothy 2, 19, just a few verses after Paul, uh, these passages from Paul bring together these these two truths. This is 2 Timothy 2, 19. But God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are His, And let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. So let me end with these two exhortations. The only way you can stand in the midst of persecution is through the strength of Christ that He offers in that moment. Your effort right now should not be becoming physically or mentally strong enough to endure torture or death for the name of Christ. You should fix your eyes on Christ and His faithfulness, His promises, and His strength to raise the dead. Our text teaches that a confession untethered to the strength of Christ will crumble when it is challenged. So just as we do in the supper, we take hold of Christ and cling to His power over sin and death and see the eternal weight of glory in suffering and that to die is gain. For those here who maybe are struggling with maybe some guilt or shame over a time in your life that you denied Christ in the face of opposition, or maybe you remained silent when you had an opportunity to speak the truth on account of Christ, I encourage you to run to Christ for forgiveness. Pray for strength in those future moments and take hold of Christ as we do in the Lord's Supper. Your sins are forgiven. And He will not deny those that are His. He remains faithful when we are unfaithful. Now, there is a difference in the fruit of those that deny Christ, continue in sin, and take their shame into their own hands. We see the two types of fruit in Peter's response and Judas's response. Judas sought to deal with his sin on his terms and in his own way. He ends up taking his life and throwing the money back. That was his posture, that was his way of atoning for the guilt and shame that he felt. But Peter runs to Christ. 
Peter confirmed his love for Christ and went on to live a life of fruit that matched his repentance and love for Christ. If there's anyone here today that has not trusted in Christ or believes that by their strength they will be able to stand on the day of judgment in their own righteousness, Mark wants you to realize that if your confession is based on anything other than Christ's faithfulness, you will not be able to stand on the day of judgment. The call here is for us to put our confidence in Christ alone. He is the only one that can save. He is the only one that can keep you in the midst of persecution. And though our flesh is weak, Christ will keep those that are His. Let's pray. Father, it is because of your faithfulness through your Son that we all gather here to worship. It is what brings us to the table when we share that meal together. It's all centered on the work of Christ and His work alone that grants salvation and gives us hope in the midst of this world. Father, we ask for your help. We ask for the strength of Christ. We ask for the Spirit as we encounter those maybe contexts of suffering and persecution. Lord, may we count these situations of trial and testing and persecution as joy and that we are blessed. Help us to stand in those moments boldly and confidently in Christ and His strength to endure suffering who was able to look at the cross despising its shame and was able to endure that cross because he saw the joy on the other side. So Lord, help us to walk in strength in our faith. Help us to cling to Christ. Help us as, our, help us as disciples to discern those things in our lives that so quickly entangle us and that cause us to desire things other than Christ. May we put everything in order. May we put it at the feet of Christ, trust in His faithfulness, and see Christ as truly valuable. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Hear your benediction from Jude, um, starting in verse 17, and I am going to read through 25. But you, beloved, must remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, that they were saying to you, in the last times there will be mockers following their own ungodly lusts. These are the ones who cause divisions, worldly-minded, not having the Spirit, but you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. And on some who are doubting, have mercy, and for others, save, snatching them out of the fire, and on others, have mercy with fear, hating even the tunic polluted by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless, with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, might, and authority before all time and now and forevermore.